Anyway, there are two big problems that we're going to deal with tonight, and some smaller ones. One problem is the repetition of Truma and Titzaveh and Vayakel Bekudeh. Now, the way the Torah tells us, the way the Torah talks to us, the connection between Truma and the Marashah that comes before Truma, which is Mishpatim, right, is not clear. It just says, uh, it says at the end of Mishpatim, uh, wait, wait a second, you have to know the Parshiot of Shemot. It's good. That way we can talk about it. So the first part of the book of Shemot is about Yitziat Mitzrayim. Right? That Shemot Va'era Bo B'Shalach. Shemot Va'era Bo B'Shalach. Those are the parashiyot of Yitziat Mitzrayim, Kriyat Yamsum, then get to Har Sinai. Then you have the parashiyot of Matan Torah. Of Matan Torah. Yitro, Mishpatim, Trumat, Itzaveh, Kitisa, which is the parsha that contains the story of the Egel Azahav, Vayakel Pekudeh. So, it's a problem. Why do we need Truma and Titzaveh, and also Vayakel Pekudeh? Why couldn't the Torah just say at the beginning of Vayakel, like we say, Truma Titzaveh, they were going to build the Mishkan as soon as Moshe Rabbeinu came down from Har Sinai, but unfortunately, there was a mishap, the Egel Azahab, the golden calf. And so, uh, it wasn't certain what would happen. It wasn't certain whether this whole thing would continue, whether it was decided by the Rebbeinu Shalom that it would continue, that, uh, that history would play itself out somehow. So then the Torah should have said, after Moshe Rabbeinu came, went up the mountain the second time, then came down, the Torah should have said, and as stated previously, start building the Mishkan. Instead, the Torah goes through the whole story, over again, that you have to build a building, and the building has to be very special and splendorous, and then you have to build, make, big day kahuna, right? So that's a question. The second question, which I've often referred to on Tisha B'Av, but is no less a question today, and that is, if so much of the Torah is involved with the Beit HaMikdash, the Mishkan, the Korbanot, so much in terms of just weight, there's, it would seem from reading the Torah that you can't do without it. Now I understand the people deserve to be punished. The punishment of the Churban Habayit was something that we deserved. But the first Churban Habayit, I understand better. Because 50 years later, the Jews came back to Eretz Yisrael and started to build the temple over again. So that within the historical eye, we were never missing the Beit HaMikdash. We, we didn't, if you look back, like who can look at 50 years? You know, in, 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 in uh, uh, 2,500 years back. I mean, what's 50 years? It's nothing. It's as though the temple was really always there. Because 
from the moment that it was destroyed until the 50 years later when they started to rebuild it, they thought about it all the time. They thought about rebuilding it, about having it. <coughs> However, after the Churban Bayit Sheni, Churban Bayit Sheni in 70, well, 70 CE, right? So it's been 2,000 years that we've developed and changed, especially in the last few hundred years, with a lot of changes in the world. And we've undergone, all we, the Jewish people, have undergone these changes without the Beit HaMikdash. Now, shouldn't that be a problem? I mean, how is it possible? I mean, exile, I understand. It's a punishment. But how could the punishment be that we don't have the Beit HaMikdash when the Torah puts so much emphasis on this Beit HaMikdash, it seems an unreasonable punishment. So, we have that question, the two questions. One is, why does the Torah repeat Truma and Tetzaveh in Vayakel Pekudeh? The Torah could have just said, as stated above, make it, make the Mishkan. There was some doubt whether everything after the Chet Egel was in place, Apparently it is. It was all in place. So go and build a Mishkan. Right? One question. The second question is, what about the fact that we haven't had a Mishkan or a temple or a place for the last 2,000 years? Isn't that counterindicated somehow? If you read the Torah, the Torah puts such an emphasis on all of these things that you would imagine. You would imagine that, how do we live without it? I mean, we can't. It's like living without Shabbat. Could, could the Jewish people live without Shabbat? You know, Chada'am? Chada'am was not a religious man. At all. You know, in those days, if you weren't religious, you really weren't religious. It was none of this wishy-washy kind of things that we have today. So Chada'am said, Yotem Mishay Yisrael, Shamarat HaShabbat, HaShabbat Shamar Al Yisrael. And, uh, okay, that would be true about uh, about any mitzvah, but Shabbat was the mitzvah that he perceived as being the, the definition of the Jewish people. We are the ones who keep the Shabbat. Okay. Now I want to I want to show you something else. Shmot v'ereba b'shalach, right? Yitziat mitzrayim, yitro mishpatim. That's matan Torah. At the end of the parish of mishpatim. Moshe Rabbeinu goes up at Har Sinai again and he's there <coughs> he's there 40 days and 40 nights at the end of the parasha of Yitro the parasha that precedes it the end of the parasha of Yitro right? Yitro is the parasha of Aseret Debrot. right? the Aseret Debrot, the Ten Commandments of the parasha of Yitro at the end of the parasha of Yitro there's a there's a mitzvah and the mitzvah is this. Mizbach adamat aseli. You have to make a altar. A mizbeach. Adama. Like they used to make it out of earth. And then put stones around it. To keep everything, you know, in place. Mizbach adamat aseli. Mizavachta alavet olatecha vetshlamecha. Et sonkha vet bekarecha, bekol makom asher askir et shimi avo elechol berachticha. Ve'im izbeach advanim ta'aseli, 
And if you build the Mizbech out of stone, which means you should not hew the stones. But you just take stones that they find them outside in the wherever they are, you pile them up one on the other and you build them as bare. Because in order to hew the stones, you have to do it with a sharp instrument, like a knife or a, or a chisel. That's no good. That's a, using a, a weapon to make them as That That the, the Torah doesn't like. Then it says, don't go up on stairs to go up on the Mizbeg. The way they would give the Korban would be that, as you know, in the Beit HaMikdash, the Kohanim stood on top of the Mizbeg. They had this keves, a ramp. They walked up on a ramp, not stairs, as it says here in the, in the Torah. They walked up on this ramp, and then they did whatever they had to do on top of the Mizbeg. The Mizbeg was so big that they were able to walk around on top of the Mizbeach, right? To walk from the northern side to the southern side, etc. So at the end of the parasha of Yitro, at the end of the parasha of Yitro, there is a command in the Torah to build a Mizbeach, an altar. And of course, <coughs> you might ask, what has this altar got to do with anything? After all, in the parasha of Truma. Truma, which again is the parasha of building the <coughs> stuff that you put into the Aron, into the Beit HaMikdash, into the, the Mishkan. One of the things that they were directed to build was the Mizbeah. So if they're directed to build the Mizbeah of the parasha of Truma, what exactly are they doing here at the end of the parasha of, of Yitro? Again, at the end of the parasha of Yitro, which is the second, which is the parasha of Matan Torah, there's a directive in the Torah to build a Mizbeach. Good. But <coughs> there's also a directive to build a Mizbeach in the parasha of Truma, and then again in the parasha of Pekudeh, build a Mizbeach. So if they had to build a Mizbeach as part of the Mishkan, what is this Mizbeach at the end of at the end of Parsha uh, of Yitro. So, this question, the question about this Mizbeach is addressed by the Sforno. The Sforno was an Italian commentator who was very highly regarded and found his way into the Mikraot Gedolot. You know, the, uh, found his way into the, what they call the Rabbinic Bible. Rabbinic meaning that there are rabbis who wrote commentaries and they're printed on the page. This was an old, uh, an old method uh, where you could give the buyers the impression that they were getting more for their money. You took the same page as the Chumash and you printed all kinds of other perushim on that page. Uh, the winner of this competition uh, champion to date is Art Scroll that has now printed a Mikraot Gidolot with 18 commentaries on the page. <coughs> How they did that, I don't know. But they're there. 18 commentaries on the page of the Mikraot Gidolot. Whereas the regular Mikraot Gidolot on the, on the two pages, you know, the 
maybe have uh, seven or eight uh, commentaries. One, two, three, four, five, six. No, maybe eight or nine. But they have 18. That's a big jump. <coughs> so that was the system in the old days. So one of the commentaries that made it onto the page of the Mikrot Gedolot is the Svorno. Because even though it would seem to us, you know, he's in Italy, the 1500s, sort of like didn't fit in with anybody else, but he was highly regarded and included in the... Uh, so on the sheet that you have, there is a there is a Svorno. And the Svorno... Uh, where's my Svorno? Here, it's on this Pasuk. Perikav Dalit Pasuk Yudchet V'yavo Moshe B'toche Anan so the Svorno says I have a, yeah, I, I have it on a separate sheet but uh, if you look at um, at the Svorno uh, you have to look at I want to just read the relevant uh, the really relevant uh, uh, part here. Usag ba'arba'im yom. Usag ba'arba'im yom. Well, I'll read the whole thing. <laughs> I'll read the whole thing. It's easier than finding it. Vayhi Moshe Bahar. That's what the Pasuk said, that Moshe was on the mountain. Vayale Bahar. Vayhi Moshe Bahar. Arba'im yom ba'arba'im layla. Why does it say that? The whole palm shalash sham mikan ba'elas shaha arba'im yom. After he went up another forty days on the mountain, arba'im laila kiyemei yitzirat avlad. Okay, so the Sfarno says something about the number forty. He says the number forty represents the number of days that an embryo gestates until you can call it a a person. Right? This is a, a problem about. Uh, about what is an embryo? Is an embryo a person and therefore uh, cannot be killed, for example? I mean, who takes precedence, the mother or the embryo, if there's a difficult pregnancy? These questions are very much part of halakha. So he says that the number 40 is chosen because 40 is the number of days it takes to create another human being. And since that Moshe Rabbeinu was doing something that was as important as creation itself, so he was there for 40 days. I mean, after all, nobody knows why Moshe Rabbeinu was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, because whatever it was that Moshe Rabbeinu learned from a Kodesh Bochum, he could have learned it in a day, or in a week, or in a... I mean, there's no, no reasonable uh, 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 way of explaining why 40 days was necessary. It doesn't matter how much material there was. If God <coughs> wanted to uh, teach Moshe Rabbeinu all this material he could have done it in a day I imagine right? I'm just saying things I'm not saying that I know this but it would seem to me that God would not be limited as we are by by a timeline you know, they say Moshe Rabbeinu like how, how talented he how much could he remember no it doesn't matter okay that's Yitzirat of Lad Liknot Tachtav Sham Havaya Nikbedet what? Shame, uh, leknot tachtav shame avaya nechbedet. I don't know. Ruya lishmo mepi arav mashalo 
Yasigehu Zulato. He was able to hear and understand what no one else was able to understand. To Moshe Idbamro, as it says, when he came down on the mount from the mountain on the second time, Kikaran Opanav Bidabro Ito, that, that Moshe Rabbeinu shined, his face shined. They saw that, that Moshe Rabbeinu had changed during these 40 days and 40 nights. And the Cheta Egel uh, was the dis- that which destroyed everything. Just at the moment that Moshe Rabbeinu would have been able to understand everything. In other words, the first time that Moshe Rabbeinu came down from the mountain, the Torah doesn't say Karan Opanav, that is, face shined, right? You all remember... Rembrandt's rendition of Moshe Rabbeinu coming down with the, with the light shining from his, uh, his face. That's what that may be. I don't know if Rav Cook knew that, but you know that Rav Cook saw the, uh, the Rembrandt's in London in one of the museums. I'm not sure which one. I mean, I should know, but I forget. The National Gallery. <coughs> the National Gallery. Oh, you see Rabbi Sylvester speaks from a special point of expertise, his mother, right? Uh, uh, but it was the National Gallery, I think in the article, I mean, so that, that what was it that Rav Cook saw? Rav Cook saw light. He saw that through the Rembrandt, or he said he saw that Rembrandt had some special uh, ability to convey the notion of light in, this, in his paintings. So, in this painting of Moshe Rabbeinu with the light coming out of his face, uh, Rembrandt did a job, did a good job. So he says, That's Moshe Rabbeinu. And in the middle, the 40 days in the middle, remember 40 days in Harsinai, 40 days in the middle, 40 days in Harsinai again, and you get to Yom HaKippurim, according to Rashi, 120 days from Yud Zion, oh, it doesn't matter, from Vav Sivan, to Yud Zion Betamus, to Rosh Chodesh Elul, to uh, uh, Yom Kippur. Zohu Lehenot B'Karne Hod, Vusagzeh, Ba'arba'im Yom Achronim, and so, Moshe Rabbeinu, rose to the occasion the second time, the first time he had no one to give the luchot to he came down, he broke the luchot so certainly the light was out of his face, he didn't have that light but he went out the same he went up the second time and somehow Moshe Rabbeinu was able to really assume the depths of the Torah the second time he went up on Har Sinai. <coughs> the beginning of the so he says, he the Svarno, he says, you know, the second time Moshe Rabbeinu went up on the mountain to get the Torah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Moshe Rabbeinu, prepare an Aron, an ark. And the Mephoshim go out of the way to indicate that this is not the ark that's in the Mishkan. 
This is not the ark that was built later by Bitzalel and put into the Mishkan, but this is an ark, a place. It's because HaKadosh Baruch knew that you had to have a place for the Luchot until the Mishkan would be built. The Mishkan, they started building the Mishkan the day that Moshe Rabbeinu came down at Har Sinai, which was the 10th day of Tishrei. So they started on the 11th day of Tishrei. And when was the Chanukat HaMishkan? Rosh Chodesh? Nisan, Yafet. So from, from Yud Tishrei <coughs> until Nisan, Tishrei, Cheshmer, Kislev, Tevi, Shvat, Adar, right? Six months. Six months you needed a place for the for the Luchot. Because there was no Mishkan, there was no Aron, there was nothing great. So HaKadosh Baruch said to Moshe Rabbeinu when he went up at Har Sinai, said to him, make an Aron. So when you come down, you'll be able to put the Luchot into the Aron. The first time Moshe Rabbeinu went up at Har Sinai, HaKadosh Baruch didn't tell him to make an Aron. And therefore, when Moshe Rabbeinu came down carrying the Luchot, carrying the Luchot that saw what was going on in the camp, and the Egel Azahab, the golden calf, he had no place to put the Luchot. So he broke them. He threw them down. And how did he do that? Right? Because... <coughs> continue, continue... That Moshe Rabbeinu broke the Luchot and the Otiyot, the letters, flew away into the air, back to heaven. So, I mean, this is not a reportage, but it's a statement. It's a statement that says, that says that Moshe Rabbeinu broke the Luchot but he didn't break the Torah. Even though these luchot were made and fashioned and given by HaKadosh Baruch <coughs> to Moshe Rabbeinu, in fact, the luchot nishbaru, but otiyot parchot ba'avir. That's what the Gemara says. He doesn't quote that last letter. They flew away into, into, the, into heaven. And therefore, they were available, these letters, were available the second time Moshe Rabbeinu went up Har Sinai and he brought the stones that he had hewn to God so God just put the same letters back on the stones that Moshe Rabbeinu made so you see that there was sort of like a, a story behind the story that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was aware of the fact that this problem might ensue and therefore did not Direct Moshe Rabbeinu to build an ark. Further, You see, he says that's what Akadish Borhu said to Moshe Rabbeinu in the parish of Truma. Which means that there's going to be a place where the availability of God's presence is heightened. That's what it means. But look at the Sophono. Now he says, uh, 
And this is actually a departure from the original intention in the Torah, which is, Now the Sorda doesn't, doesn't mention it. <coughs> but you know very well, you know very well that when the Jews came to Eretz Israel, they were permitted to sacrifice at a Bama, at a high place. Where would this high place be? Anywhere. Anywhere. In, the, in your backyard. In your backyard. Everybody could be, everybody could be a possessor of his own Beit HaMikdash. And according to the Sephonos, that's what the, 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 uh, Sukim at the end of the parasha of Yitro, which begin with the words Mizbach of Adama, that you should make a, a, a Mizbeach out of, out of dirt or out of stones, but you shouldn't use the stones. <coughs> that, that is the original desire. According to the Sephono, Lokomo Sheyed Kodem Lachay, not as it was determined earlier to be our interest, Kamrubis Bachavadamat Haseli, Bekola Makoma Shaskir Chimia Voy Lecha, Avalata. In other words, originally, originally it sounds like the Beit HaMikdash was not the primary uh, idea here. It wasn't what had to be. But what had to be was that every single person would have the opportunity, <coughs> every single person would have the opportunity, <coughs> every single person had the opportunity to serve God wherever he was. Wherever he was. That's the Mizbacha Dama. And then he goes on and says, uh, but now we see a different story. It's directly Kohanim. What a Kohanim. They're part of a family. Each Kohen is the son of a Kohen. And you can't bring a sacrifice without the support of a Kohen. So that Truma, the first rendition of the, according to the Sforno, the first rendition of the Mitzvah of Mishkan, of building a tabernacle, is already a change from the original intention. And when history played itself out in Eretz Israel, during the 400 years, <coughs> on and off, okay, it's more complicated, I'm sorry. There, there were long periods of time when the Jews were able to bring korbanot, and serve God on the Bama that they built in their own homes or back in their own backyards. That was the way it was until the Beit HaMikdash was built and then uh, this uh, opportunity to sacrifice wherever you were was cancelled in favor of the Beit HaMikdash. And so according to the Sforno, it's dug into history. He said, you could find it. It's not just that in Eretz Israel, first they could and then they couldn't. But it would seem that that's where the Torah is telling us. What the Torah is telling us. So what is the Torah telling us? That as a nation, as a nation, 
we really can't take up that option. We don't have the emotional or spiritual strength to have a, a, a mizbeach close by, to have this opportunity to serve God in the most exalted fashion, right, right next to your house. And so when the Jews came into Eretz Israel, probably the beginning there was great enthusiasm. They conquered the land, they divided it up amongst the families. But eventually, uh, eventually, it just wouldn't work. There had to be this central place. And there had to be the Kohanim who would maintain the standard of Avodah and make sure that it did not deviate from the norm. So that's what, that's what he says. And he goes on and he says, <coughs> Right, Moshe Rabbeinu is directed to bestow upon Aharon the the kahuna, the priesthood. And and after the Masa Egel. After Masah Egel, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Mi Lashem Eli, who is with me? And all the B'nai Levi came along, and they supported Moshe Rabbeinu. And their reward was that they became the servants of the tabernacle. So there was a change at the time of the, of the, uh, <coughs> of the second, uh, uh, Mishkan story. So, so listen to what the Svarno has kind of led us into. There's the Mizbeach. There's the Mishkan with the Kohen. There's the Mishkan with the Kohen and the Levi, which you might say is a kind of descending order. Imagine a world in which everybody had his own Mizbeach, had his own place, his own access to God, that that's a world that could not be supported and the proof of that is B'nai Yisrael coming to Eretz Yisrael and not being first being allowed to and then being forbidden to serve God in that way this is not the parish of Truvat and Tzaved. This is the parish of Ayakel Kekudeh. This is the second car time. So you see that the, that the, the, the Sephardo has like two ideas that I see in this, in this, uh, uh, explanation. <coughs> and there are two ideas. And one idea, one idea is that in the Torah, we are given an, an opportunity to think about various modes of service, starting from the highest and going, compromising that highest form of service. Highest form of service is that anywhere, anytime, the availability of a mitzvah. Below that, a specific place, a specific time, Kohanim, who are obviously intermediaries of some sort between whatever you want to do and whatever might be uh, receiving divine approval. And then finally, the Levian. Now, who are the Levian? 
the Leviim are the ones who are not enticed by the Cheta Egel, by the golden calf. So by putting the Leviim into the surface of God and the Mishkan, what you're saying is that you're putting in an eternal reminder of this problem that was created by Am Yisrael. And the Leviim, the Leviim would actually prevent B'nai Yisrael from achieving the spiritual height that they would be interested in achieving because <coughs> because there are the Leviim there. I mean, the Leviim who came to Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu said, Mila Shem they all came and they said, what should we do? And Moshe Rabbeinu said, you have to kill the perpetrators, you have to kill the ones who, are. they did it. They did it and they, and I wouldn't say their reward, but as a result, they became the proprietors of the Beit HaMikdash. They were the ones who stood at the gates, let people in. Uh, they sang together. They were part of the service of HaKadosh Baruch. So you see that there is either a change, a descending order, a realignment, a reaffirmation. So according to the Svarno, the second time the beta, the Mishkan is described in, the, in our Parashiyot Vayakel and Pekudeh, it's not the same as in Truma and Tetzaveh. And it's certainly not the same as the end of the parasha of Yitro, which talks about the Mizbech Adama. Okay. <coughs> if you look at the sheet, at the second page of the sheet, <coughs> I'm, so, I'm being done in by my cough for a change. <coughs> what? Can I get you some water? But you don't, thank you. I mean, I wish it would help me, but it doesn't. Or the water, you know. <coughs> if you look at the sheet, at the second part of the sheet, it's a quote from the Misilaki Sharid. Misilaki Sharid, Moshe Chaim Mutsato. Moshe Chaim Mutsato. It was the first question that we asked before was, how come the, the Torah tells about the Mishkan in Truman Tetzaven, they repeats it in Vayachel and Pekudeh. So I quoted to you the, the Sephardim who seems to say that they're not the same. They're not the same. He uses as a proof the Levim. And the fact that the Levim remind us of the Chet Egel, And that means that the Chet Egel was never overcome. As I've shown you several times at the end of Perik Lamed Bet Yishvot, whenever God comes to punish B'nai Israel, he gives him a little zets for the Chet Egel. We're never in the clear. We're never in the clear with the Chaita So here we have the Misilat Yisharim. Misilat Yisharim is a great uh, uh, book of Musar. And Musar, in this case, I mean that it teaches you to improve yourself, <coughs> to do it better, to be more in touch. That's the Misilat Yisharim. The last parak in Misilat Yisharim is Perak Avav. <coughs> Perak Avav which is called Kedusha, Sanctity. Now actually, I don't know anybody in any yeshiva, personally, I mean, that doesn't mean there aren't any, but I don't know anybody who ever got this far in the Misrach Yisharim. Misrach Yisharim is a book that you have to, like, um, 
Like you have to swallow it slowly. I mean, the, 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 he tells you to do something, so you have to go and try to do it. I mean, what's the point of reading on if you're not quite up to par? But uh, if you sneak around, you might get to chapter 27, 26. That's me. I got to chapter 26. It talks about Kedushat. And I'll read it in Hebrew. And you can look at the English if you want. This is the original Feldheim translation of the Mesilat Yisharim by Shraga Silverstein, who died recently, but he was a very nice man, a very uh, intelligent, and did a very good translation. Uh, there's a new translation that Feldheim put out by somebody or other, I don't remember who. But this is the one that we still, uh, that I still use. Old habits, you know, die hard. HaKadosh HaDavek Tamid Lelokav Someone who is in this category called Kadosh is someone who cleaves always to his God. V'nafsho mitalechet bein hamuskalot amitiyot ba'avat bor'o v'yirato He has achieved avat bor'o, the love of God, yirato, the yira of God, and and his soul uh, sort of like traverses or, or travels between the, the kind of true understandings of things, true understanding of love, true understanding of fear. It's as though he is actually walking with God in the, in the uh, land of the living, as long as, uh, uh, while he is still here in our world. So here is the description of this tzaddik. Uh, not, not tzaddik, he is a tzaddik, but he possesses the midah of, of sanctity. Right? K- I'm sorry, kedusha. He possesses the, the midah of kedusha. And he says, <coughs> You see, I'm on the fourth line. The second part of the sentence after the apostrophe. No, not apostrophe. What's that called? Oh, comma. He says, this man himself, he is a tabernacle. He is a temple. He is a altar, an altar. Uchemamaram, Zichronam Nebracha, as the Chachamim said, Vayal me'alav Elokim. God left Avram Avinu Avot, Hein Hein Amerkava. The fathers, Avram Yitzchid Yaakov, are like the Merkava, the chariot upon which God sits. Vechein Amru, another quote of Rashi at Sadikim. Hein hein Amerkava, the righteous ones, they are the chariot. Ki ashkina shora alehem, kemoshaita shora b'mikdash. The shkina, the presence of God, dwells upon them just as it was in the Beit HaMikdash. Umeata, listen to this one. When they eat the korban, when they eat, sorry, when they eat, it's just like eating the korban. Just like eating the korban. It's a regular person 
who has to bring a korban and is going to eat from that korban, well, he needs that whole setup to feel that he's entering a sacred place. He needs the kohanim dressed in fancy dress. He needs the Levim singing their songs and making the music. He needs all that to feel what he is doing. But these, <coughs> these people who have Kedusha, who have achieved Kedusha, they don't need any of that. And me'ata, ha'machal she'em ochlim korban she'olel gabei ha'ishim. I don't know if you know about Chassidut, but you know in Chassidut, many of the Chassiduyot, in many of the Chassiduyot, the Rebbe has a tish. You know what a tish is? A tish is a table. There's a table. And what do they do at the table with the Rebbe? They eat. Yes, they really eat. And what is it that they eat? They eat what the Rebbe ate. Now this may not appeal to your sense of hygiene, but that's what they do. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Because the shulchan, the tish that the Rebbe is eating from is the table of sanctity. Another way of saying the mizbeach. Another way of saying the mizbeach. So that when you sit at the table with the Rebbe, see, I miss my opportunities. What's happened to me? I was at the tish of the Belzer Rebbe who doesn't live, you know, who's not too far from my house, so I don't think I made a great effort. So I was at the tish, and suddenly I see a guy coming at me like a missile. And in his hand there was like a spoon, a large spoon. And in the spoon was soup. He coming, he's like another minute he would have knocked my nose off. He was like determined. And he said, Sharayim from the Rebbe which means just take it and don't say anything so I said that I heard from my daughter in the gun that lo chlim mi so I was not the hero of bells for that, that evening <laughs> anyway this is a perfectly accurate description long before Hasidut of the way Hasidim understand I mean I'm done, of course you know there are a lot of Hasidim and not all of them understand a lot but the ones who understand or who think they understand or know what they're doing or think they know what they're doing this is what they're doing this is what they're doing so what are they doing what are they doing they are doing the end of the parasha of Yitra in other words, my second question was at the beginning of the Shia, my second question was <coughs> how can we live without the the Beit HaMikdash? I mean, I understand it's a punishment, punishment but, but, but we need it. We need it for all this all this kind of access to HaKadosh Baruch all the, the, the way everybody talks about the Beit HaMikdash and what was going on and how it was. How is it possible that we live without the Beit HaMikdash? So the Sephorno said, the Sephorno said, Mizbeach Adama, that was the highest level 
the level that Bnei Yisrael might have been able to achieve right after Matan Torah, after HaKadosh Baruch Hu spoke to Bnei Yisrael, that they heard something they'd never heard before. And maybe at that moment, the level of Kedusha of sanctity was such that they could access it with a Mizbeach alone. All they needed was a Mizbeach. And then it went down. Right? The Kohanim, the Leviyim, we understand the Egel HaZahav, it was not... It's something you had to do, had to get it out of our system. But over the 2,000 years of the Galut, over 2,000 years of the Galut, you could say, based on the Misilat Yisharim, and of course many other Hasidic Sfarim, you could say that Bnei Yisrael are trying, are trying, what is trying, Bnei Yisrael is trying. Bnei Yisrael is trying <coughs> to achieve that level of the Mizbech Adama where you can kind of do the Mikdash even when there is no Mikdash. All you need is somebody imbued with Kedushah. And since it's hard to know who that person is, although I want to tell you something, you know, recently there was this YouTube video of five seconds of the Chavetz Chaim, and it really got everybody excited. I mean, including me. I don't get excited so easily. But I felt it was like a, a, a real privilege to see the Chavetz Chaim. I mean, he, well, he didn't do anything in, the, in this video. It just, he just walked from one place to another. <clears throat> but you know, there are people who you feel are, that might be determining personalities. They might be able to, you know, be a little more than everybody else. I mean, everybody, else, everybody knows that everybody has faults. But there, there are, must be some people who have fewer faults. <laughs> it's not like having faults is like the, the default the default position so I say people got were excited because they knew that the Chavetz Chaim everybody knows the Chavetz Chaim's mind besides everything else that he did but his mind was always in the days of the Mashiach you know the Chavetz Chaim was a Kohen and so he, he and he had a Kolel he had a Kolel a Raden they learned Kachin. Only Kohanim were in the Kolel. By the way, Rav Kook was in that Kolel for about a year. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe it was a little less than a year. But Rav Kook was in the Kolel with the Chavetz Chaim. The Chavetz Chaim knew Rav Kook very well. And that's why when they went to, they went to Rodden, there was a uh, group, you know, of, uh, you know, of happy people from Yerushalayim who went to the Chavetz Chaim to asked the Chavetz Chaim to put Rav Kook in the Cheyrim so Chavetz Chaim said look I know him you're mistaken it's not uh, it's not possible I mean what you say about Rav Kook is not possible so the Chavetz Chaim the Chavetz Chaim was a uh, was, was somebody special like he was like the Rebbe of the Misnagdim he, because his personality, his personality gave us optimism. We were all optimistic. If there could be a Chavetz Chaim, so we could be optimistic about who we are, more or less. <coughs> so the Mitzvah describes describes the fact that there is the possibility in the world to get to level one, the Mizbeach Adama, at the end of the parasha of Yitro. 
And so that possibility enables us to overcome the lack of the Beit HaMikdash, I would say. I would say, and so the Messiah Yisrael can say, and when that Kadosh, that person, that sacred person eats, he's eating from the Mizbeach. He's eating from the sacrifice that was sacrificed, meaning that he, uh, his devotion to and his attachment to and his uh, connection to HaKadosh Baruch is such that it's like the Mizbeach, like having a Mizbeach type of center of... Uh, and so, you know, the Gemara says that the calls Batek Neset, Batek Neset Mikdash Ma'at, a little Beit HaMikdash, there's a little Beit HaMikdash. Of course, it doesn't mean that if you donate the money and they build a shul that you've got it. It doesn't mean that. Because besides donating the money, and besides, like, being there, you have to really want it to be a Mikdash Ma'at. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But if I, if I had to answer the question, how do we live in all these years without the Beit HaMikdash, when the Torah seems to place such great importance on the Beit HaMikdash, my answer is that we don't live with the fact that we don't have a Beit HaMikdash. We live with the idea that we can create a Mizbech Adama wherever we are. And that is at least as good spiritually as the Beit HaMikdash. Okay. Have a good Shabbos.